Hey guys, welcome back to the show. Let's get talking about your psychology. What is going on in between those two ears of yours? Make sense of it. Make sense of what we may deem to be irrational. It's not irrational. It seems irrational from a certain perspective, but ultimately it is rational. So how can how we, we can make sense of it so we can go on to make the decisions that we want to make, which is really the point of everything. I know I've been out of commission for the past couple of weeks. Well, I moved, I think I mentioned that. So that was part of it. I was out of town, I hurt my hip, I pulled the <laughs> tendon in my right hip here, my hip flexor. So that was uh, made things interesting there for a few days. But I am back, I am back talking about our psychology and everything that we need to do to manage it. I will say moving is a great thing. You guys gotta move. You got to, you don't have to move towns necessarily, although I do think that is helpful at some point. You know, there's a benefit to staying in the same place your entire life. There's also a benefit to moving around. You know, it's give and take there. But even if you stay in the same town, the same city, your entire life, you got to move. You know, it's so interesting. Like, we can know what's wrong with us. We can have awareness and we can have like these, I don't know, outdated uh, behaviors, beliefs about ourselves. So like these laden thoughts that maybe we're not good enough or these behaviors, these procrastination issues. You know, we, we can mostly do what we want to do, but we, we really can't. Or, or maybe we're like uh, accepting second-class behavior from a friend. And we kind of know it's there. We do. And if somebody asked us about it, if somebody brought it up, we'd say, oh yeah, I know about that. We'd be uncomfortable and we'd want to change the subject as quickly as possible. But but we would know. Like, yeah, I got a procrastination thing. Or yeah, I have a little bit too, too much beer in the evening. But we're not really going to do anything about it until something happens. Right? And we're forced to really look at it. A girl breaks up with us. Okay. Now I really need to manage my apologetic behavior. Now I really need to manage my approval seeking because it came up in this one area of my life, it manifested here, and now it's painful, and now I, I, I need to look at it. I can't not look at it. And I think that's, that's what moving is. And you have extra crap in your room, in your closet somewhere, and you know you don't really need it. But you're not really going to do anything to throw it out until... It's time to move. And now you're looking at this this thing, this piece of ultimately garbage. It's garbage for you. In the context of this new room, of this new life that you're le leading, say, well, I'm not going to move this in here. Right? So I, I wasn't going to throw it out in the old place, but now I'm not going to move it in. Now I need to get rid of it, donate it, throw it out, recycle, whatever. And it's just the power of awareness. You know, I have this uh, deal with my wife. You know, she can buy whatever she wants. I don't care. I don't care how much it is. I really don't. Just tell me what it's worth or tell me what you paid for it. That's the only thing I care about. Not going to get upset if you buy, I don't know, a purse that's too expensive or whatever. Just talk to me. Just tell me what's going on. You know you're getting overweight, right? But do you really know? Step on the scale. There's a difference between knowing something and then really being aware of it. And moving just really makes you more aware of that process. And, and how your relationship with something that you don't really need is, is changed simply by moving. Your relationship with an outdated thought or belief or behavior is changed simply by maybe a girl breaking up with you typically or being fired 
or it could be in fact moving from one town to another. What am I really going to take with me? I can't, I can't help. Now, oftentimes when people move to change or to especially move to fix their problems, it's usually running away from their problems. And of course, they just follow them. It's called doing a geographical. Wherever you go, there you are. Great saying. So that's just something I noticed. I mean, to the extent that that admonishment from Jordan Peterson is, is correct to, to clean your room. I think he is right in the certain sense of like when you're cleaning out your room, you're ultimately cleaning out your mind and you're developing a relationship with what's in your room, really a better relationship with yourself. That's really the point of cleaning your room. It's not about scrubbing the floor. I think that's ultimately what he means when he says that. A lot of people don't take it that way, but that's a good piece of uh, admonishment from Gordon Peterson. You know, not that he doesn't have those. I've talked about him. and He just doesn't have a good explanation or explication of psychology. He is a philosopher who thinks he's a psychologist. He's not a psychologist. So today I want to talk about something that, I don't know, may be helpful. May help us uh, get a better grasp of what's going on in our psychology. And that is an essay that I read once on my own, uh, probably about 10 years ago now. And that's why I want to talk about this, is because it gave me a good idea. Same thing with Nietzsche and Apollo versus Dionysus. It just gave me a good framework for where psychology is supposed to go. And this essay is Cult and Cosmic Consciousness, I think, uh, religious or religion in, in the American 1960s. And this is a time where, <clears throat> that it, by Camille Pegley, I said that, and this is a time in the, in the West where the East and West were coming together. And, there, and she actually indicates there was, a, there was a moment, I think, in 1967 where she claims that the East and West did come together, the yin and the yang, the high and the low, the sensation and the conception, the, the earth and the heaven, the, the catonic parts of us in the heaven, um, material reality, and logos, the, these two different parts of ourselves, yin and yang. They came together for this moment in 1967, according to her. I don't know. I think she was born in 1947. So maybe you just have nostalgia for the summer of love, 1967. Um, right? Like, like when I go listen to uh, bad music from the early 90s. Like, I know it's bad, but I can't stop listening to it, right? That's how Camille Paleo feels about 1967, when supposedly the East and West come together. But that's not the point. The point isn't to say that they came together, but we couldn't hold on to them. We couldn't hold on to that unison. And why not? Why couldn't we hold on to that? And I think this gives a lot of indication. I mean, she says this gives a lot of indication of where psychology needs to go if it's going to have any kind of future. That's ultimately the point of psychology is to combine the East and the West. The, the wisdom from both of these practices. Um, and she gives some indication on how to do that. So let's talk about it and I think this gives some indication of what we're trying to do here at Animus give a structure for your emotions yes we talk about emotions and how irrational they may be but ultimately there is a structure there not that you have complete control of your emotions I don't want to give you the idea that we're going to get, um, bestow that upon you here but a better understanding of, of what they're coming from and how they influence your behavior of course so when you do find yourself procrastinating when you do have those outdated thoughts and behaviors and beliefs about yourself, you know where they're coming from. It does make sense. If you find yourself acting in a self-sabotaging way, you, you, you are acting in that way 
because it does make sense from a certain perspective. You can't just say, is this really what I want to do? Of course, it's not what you really want to do, but on another level, perhaps more irrational level, it is what you want to do, and there's a specific purpose there. Um, I think this essay is a great uh, companion to what I consider the greatest political treatise of the 20th century, The Undiscovered Self by Carl Jung. Um, why is it at the height of reason and logic and and uh, all these things that were, you know, the the uh, the offspring of the Enlightenment, we find ourselves in the bloodiest century that we've ever faced. What's going on there? Well, there's a certain um, what's it called? A stress that we're going through culturally that's symbolized most strongly by the the Iron Curtain coming down, the split between the East and the West. When that iron curtain came down, that's symbolic of what's going on inside of us, this split between reason and emotion. And until we can become integrated individuals, to become individuated, right, to become a resource unto ourselves, then tyranny is going to take over. It's just what's naturally going to happen. Great. You know, you can come up with your, uh, um, you know, your Bella rights. And, you know, some economist, uh, Milton Freeman, you know, whatever. A pro-freedom economist will come up with all these great reasons, all these great economic reasons why we need to be free, why humans need to be free, and why war is destructive. Uh, you know, both communism and fascism, they're, you know, they're not really going to be too helpful for us, and we can all get it intellectually. Yet it's still going to happen. Why is that? Because of this split, ultimately, and that is what Paglia talks about, and that's what we try to, to help um, unify within you in your own personal psychology. So the Iron Curtain doesn't come down again in some other way. I mean, not that we're doing it for the sake of the Iron Curtain not coming down again, but it's the only way to ultimately inoculate ourselves from any kind of uh, tyranny. You know, whether that's the tyranny of neurosis or the tyranny of a Stalin or a Hitler, you know, is it really that different? No, I don't think so. So Paleo starts out this article talking about how cults form and how that's actually a, a very natural phenomenon or it's a natural compensation for certain uh, cultural issues that happen. And what happens, it's what happens, yeah, it is what happens when we are rootless culturally or traditionally, but we now have the means to be rootless and move around. And the same thing, she makes a lot of parallels here between the American 1960s and 70s and the downfall or certain aspects of the downfall of Rome. And she even goes into, you know, the hysteria around uh, Elvis Presley and the Beatles and Jim Morrison and how the, all these cults in ancient Rome, as it, you know, there's a bunch of cults, a bunch of mystery cults, uh, Mithraism, you know, and of course Christianity. But those are the two, you know, really powerful ones. But, but a lot of cults uh, revolved around the eternal boy. You know, it's interesting that we have these uh, uh, myths, I guess, these urban legends about, of course, Elvis Presley being alive, um, Jim Morrison being alive, not dying, you know, being these eternal uh, eternal boys because they were kind of boyish figures. They were androgynous, and of course, the most androgynous Beatle, Paul McCartney, there are myths that he was uh, dead, but was going to live on forever because of that. Um, so we're, we don't have any tradition and we're rootless, but we need something to believe in. So we're going to naturally 
form cults, form cults that we would call spiritual at first, and they revolve around sex and reproduction. Well, that's the thing. A lot of the free love, that, that was a sex cult, like the Bacchanalia sex cults and the fall of Rome. We would call that free love in the 1960s, maybe even the 70s. But what free love didn't get right and the sex cult supposedly got right, the Bacchanalia, according to Paleo, is, I mean, these were ultimately, ultimately fertility practices. So it's like, okay, we want to have all the sex, but without the, the reproduction. Let's take that out of it. And, you know, there's birth control and abortion now. Um, so we're able to do that. And just as a side note, uh, Camille Pegula says that's why these sex cults devolved into, you know, that was really about spirituality and connecting all this stuff. It's like, well, you forgot an aspect of that, which was reproduction, which was having children. And that's why it devolved, according to her, into, you know, discos and uh, sex clubs in the 70s and 80s. It just devolved into this, uh, this seediness. So she's just trying to lay out, you know, this isn't a new point if you've listened to any two minutes of any one of my videos or podcasts here, that cults form it's it's natural and it and it doesn't matter how often you tell people that cults are irrational it's something that we will do we, we will be involved in some kind of spiritual practice no matter what that is i mean you get rid of christianity there's going to be other ones and that's what happened in the 60s we all formed we, we all kind of dispersed in a way and formed different cults maybe uh, join different communes and that's what happened at the fall of Rome. You know, all these different mystery cults formed, Mithraism, Christianity. And what happens in these cults, Camellia, uh, Camille Paglia goes on, Camellia goes on to say is that messiahs form in these cults. And they're not really rooted in any kind of, uh, you know, rigid epistemology. And they claim to be instructional. They, they claim to teach, but their ultimate aim, because they don't really know what they're teaching, as part of not really making sense of what is in the quote spirit world you're just giving vague vague notions of like some kind of connection or some kind of new age or at the dawn of a new age the age of aquarius that very much came in you know that song from here and of course we are heading into the age of aquarius if you're looking at procession of the equinoxes but guys like timothy leary you know charles manson jim jones and she even says uh koresh david koresh and marshall applewhite um, I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember Marshall Applewhite, but it was this uh, Heaven's Gate in the 1990s, and they all killed themselves. And I, I just there, there's a really famous uh, video or interview of him on some kind of news network, maybe cable news network. <laughs> it looks you know nuts, and I think he even has a tinfoil hat, and he says something of the effect of "We're leaving the vehicle, right?" Because a comet was coming by Earth, and they're going to kill themselves and think that they're going to be reinstated or reincarnated on this comment that was coming about leaving the vehicle right the earth and she just Ooh. um he she says that these cults are very much the result of the relegation the the natural relegation of of spiritual practices of tradition of our culture and so you know we'll just latch on to something yeah, these guys don't really want to, you know, cult leaders, they don't really want to instruct, right? So they really what they do is they just act polarizing and get attention. And they say they're trying to tease you, but really they're just trying to bring attention to themselves. Um, and something else, you know, that she blames is a, a huge part of having these mystical experiences, but, you know, forming cults, listening to music. And another big part of it was 
drugs, you know, get involved in drugs, big part of the hippie movement and all these things are ultimately shortcuts because you take drugs, you go to some spirit world maybe, but you have a difficult time explicating what it is that comes back. Again, these are all shortcuts, whether it's sex, drugs, joining a cult, these are all shortcuts to some kind of spiritual dimension that is ultimately going to give us meaning in our life. But we can't really do anything with it. We're, we can't really make sense of it. We can have the accoutrements, you know, the trappings of having gone to that spirit world, but that doesn't mean you're articulating it well. And, you know, when it comes to making this point, just go listen to five minutes of any Alan Watt lecture. You know, it's just going to be mostly ramblings. Yeah, that's pretty fresh coming for me. I get it. But, you know, these guys just not explicating what is going on. And then something else that happened in the 60s, I mean, you know, really started before here in the in the 40s or maybe even the 30s with the Zen movement um, was the, the rise of Asian Asian religion and uh, transcendentalism. Right? We, we kind of lost some kind of belief in our Christianity and our Judaism and in our maybe more Western religions, well, more Christianity. So we went elsewhere. But ultimately, we came up with the same kind of... Um, we ultimately came up empty. And I, the best representation of this happening is the Beatles and the Maharishi. Maharashi, some kind of spiritual leader in, in India. The Beatles go there, hang out with this guy. I don't think that's his name. That's the title, the Maharishi. Maharashi. Oh, jeez. Probably, I don't think either of those are correct. But the Beatles go to India to train transcendental meditation with this guy. And it's, oh, man, it's great. You know, we got to uh, really help ground the Beatles. It really helped them. I guess they were doing a lot of drugs. And the Maharishi helped. But the idea is, is that the the Beatles in, in the West, we were only using Eastern religion as some kind of tool. Like we, we could never really turn ourselves over to it the way that an Easterner could, as represented by our kind of projection of the Maharishi as this spiritual leader um, who, who wasn't a real human. And what happened with him is, I think he made a pass at Mia Farrow. And they're like, dude, what are you doing? You're... you're, you're better than this like you're you're above sexuality you are you are at this elevated plane like not really understanding them the Maharishi is a human and so they get offended and kind of cut ties with him but that's really a good uh, embodiment a good microcosm of the entire West relationship with the East and yoga and you know Jung famously says a Westerner can't really do yoga I mean you can do yoga you can go through the stretches and of course get better hip uh, flexibility and mobility. Well, that's how I hurt my hip, actually. I was straining myself doing um, front splits, which was my COVID goal is to get the front splits. And I'm getting pretty close, but, uh, you know, I just like cranking it. Like, you know how Diamond Dallas Page has a, like, Diamond Dallas Page yoga, which is just a way for, like, uh, guys who are former wrestling fans who are obviously overweight, mostly, to start doing yoga and start stretching. Well, it's yoga, but nobody, no, no uh, former wrestling, or no, not former wrestling fans, current wrestling fans. <laughs> no wrestling fan actually wants to do yoga, right? But if you call it Diamond Dallas Page Yoga, then they're going to do it. I want to start my own yoga called Crank Yoga, where you just get in position, <laughs> whatever, whatever the position is, like down dog or, or pigeon, right? I know those. And you're stretching the muscle. And then you stretch it normally for maybe... 5, 10, maybe 15 seconds, and then you really start cranking on it. That's how you pull 
tendons and then can't walk for about 36 hours. So that's a good indication of why the East didn't really help us, although it could have, is we only used it for a tool, very much symbolic of the way that the hippies use drugs, you know? So you, and the way that we're doing it now, that hipsters were doing it now with ayahuasca going down to South America, to Peru and in these ayahuasca ceremonies. And I think these are great. You know, I, I really encourage you guys to do these things. Um, I would consider something like ayahuasca or psilocybin. These aren't drugs in the typical sense, like, uh, alcohol or marijuana right these enhance our perception of our unconscious they can as opposed to other kinds of drugs you know alcohol marijuana uh, mdma you know mdma cures depression oh yeah mda cures depression i mean uh, you know alcohol is a great pain reliever does that mean it's good for you no it's just covering up you know it's just giving you dopamine in the short term and that's all it's really doing. It's not really helping you improve. It's just kind of numbing out parts of your psychology. So it's, it's, it's easier to overlook certain aspects of your psyche is what I'm saying. So we go down to South America and do these ayahuasca ceremonies. And it's like, that ayahuasca, that's just a tool. You know, that, that's, a, that's one piece of this larger puzzle. And you're making it mean this huge spiritual thing when really to get the most out of ayahuasca and yoga and any kind of transcendental meditation is learning it as a tool in this larger cultural view in this larger world view but we don't do that we're like just give me give me the drug same thing with sex in a relationship sex is this pathway when used correctly it's this pathway to connection with somebody else it's an expression of self-esteem again right not a way to cover up your self-esteem and what we did in the 60s and 70s is just use these, use these things as like, oh, this is like something I'm just going to incorporate in my life. And maybe it's better than nothing, but it's not really an incorporation. It's really not an incorporation of the East and the West, of the lower and the higher, of the catonic and the heaven, of our emotions, of the reality of our emotions and the reality of our reason and rationality, right? Right. How it seems like a paradox, but how do we incorporate both of these into our life? Like there's no compass, right? Like so we're going into these dark netherworlds of our mind, and that's definitely what we're doing when we're, you know, um, dropping acid and and listening to a three-hour sit sitar session. Um, but what's the compass? How do we come back from this? This is the ultimate uh, inability in the reconciliation of the, yeah, a, a difficulty to have a reconciliation between Apollo and Dionysus. The, you know, these two cultural forces, of course, like the Iron Curtain is represented by inner psychic forces projected out onto culture. So Piglia's solution to this is, uh, to, um, yeah, just do what I said. I might just come up with a, a structure for, uh, a structure for, for going to those dark places of ourselves. Um, we, we have this religious function and we need, but we need to explicate it. And the right is correct in that they recognize the importance of the religious function, but they're incorrect in that they only see it in this narrow view. The left is correct. Um, in that, um, 
yeah, the, the, the left is correct in saying that the uh, that they're different in interpretations of the uh, religious function, whether it's Hinduism, Buddhism, you know, Zen, Transcendental Meditation, whatever people got into in the 60s and 70s. But there is a structure to it. There, you, We need to, to guide people through it. And her way of doing this is to ultimately, what she says is comparative religion. Well, she also gives a lot of credit to Jung here. and says, well, Jung was onto something, but unlike the cult leaders, he wasn't... Uh, Polarizing, he wasn't sensationalistic, so people didn't really pay attention to him. But he was onto something and combining these two and creating a structure for your unconscious. It's like, yes, there's an unconscious there and it looks irrational, but there's a way to make sense out of it because we, we need to take control of our lives. You know, I want us to get to a place where we can loud reason, but not that's going to devolve into World War II a few years later. So she says comparative religion is the thing to teach religion not as morality of course but uh, not that there isn't morality in religion but don't teach it that way just teach it as culture teach it as an expression of who we are not this these words that come down on uh, from on high like you know Moses coming down with the Ten Commandments no th these are actually expressions I would say um, novice expressions novice 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 expressions of who we are in the form of the ten commandments it's not really moses coming down from mount sinai that's just a, a symbolic representation of what is going on so we need to create a structure for religion for the religious experience and this is going to be a way to unify uh, any kind of split that we see in culture which i guess i didn't say this essay was i think delivered as a lecture but then turned in essay form in the early 2000s, I think 2002. Um, and she saw the cultural split happening. And that's another reason why I think this essay is really great is because a lot of the cultural split and a lot of, you know, the left turning to uh, feminism and PC as a, as a religion, you know, she saw it back in 2002 and she was very clear about it. So it just lends some more credence to, to Pegley and, and what she says. But I just thought that this is a good essay. I mean, I just wanted to talk through it, let you know uh, what I think are important issues in psychology, what I'm trying to help solve, just at least offer some piece of the bigger picture here through my breakdown of emotions and how I turn that into a therapeutic process. Okay, so emotions are in charge of our actions. Emotions have a certain structure that way. So that means in order to process them, we need to talk through them in a certain way. So they affect us less outside of our awareness and we can go on and ultimately live the life that we want and you know we don't have any of these uh, psychic disturbances, whether it's neurosis on a personal level or genocide, tyranny, another world war that really nobody re uh, wants to get into on a more cultural level. All right, guys. I will leave it there. Thank you. Um, hope this is maybe helpful in some way. Shed a new light in your psyche. If, not, and if nothing else, right, it'll maybe help you uh, fall asleep. As uh, just can't take the drone. Get in touch with me if you have any questions. Animus at animusempire.com. We do free consultations. So I have this way of doing therapy that, um, you know, we're not just going to talk and, and be buddies and, we got a purpose, you know, that there's a way to conduct yourself in therapy. 
well, yeah, there, there's a reason why there's therapy in the first place. I mean, do, do we even, can we even explicate the reason why therapy even exists? Like, what makes therapy, what makes psychology different, different than philosophy? Why did it become a different field? Is it because Wundt had these uh, experiments that he did on the brain, supposedly, that, that showed what was going on in there? No, I think that was incidental to this deeper uh, difference between philosophy and psychology that needed to be differentiated clearly in order for us to have some kind of, uh, in order for us to inoculate culture and ourselves from an iron curtain. So there's a point to therapy. There's a, there's a structure to psychology to how your emotions work. And because of this structure, we talk through emotions in a different way. And we actually, because we're at least all similar on an abstract level, the, the result from therapy the insights that you're supposed to receive from therapy are all fundamentally the same and the way that we work through those issues is all going to be fundamentally the same and that's what i can help you with here we do free consultations if you have any questions animusempire.com slash schedule thank you guys and always remember that i wish you <laughs> always remember that you're never going to be a unified whole you're never going to be a unified human who has control, some kind of control over his will, over his ego and how it functions in reality, unless you can incorporate both Eastern culture and Western culture.